Hello and welcome to Python Bytes, where we deliver Python news and headlines directly to your earbuds. This is episode 237, recorded June 9, 2021. I'm Brian Aachen. I'm Michael Kennedy. And I'm Mike Groves. Hey, Mike, thanks for showing up today. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, well, thank you guys for having me. This is actually really fun. My name is Mike Groves. I am um, leading the engineering at a company called Assembly AI. Uh, we are a, I, mainly a Python shop, uh, but um, we do a lot. We do speech to text for developers. Uh, we're an API company. So you can really think of us as we, we are trying to make speech to text and all of, the, all of the ways that you can take that text and do things with it really easy for developers so that they can you know, integrate this value into their products and make their customers happier. Yeah, that's really cool. I had somebody uh, who, you know, I had spoken to you guys at Assembly AI, AI for some Talk Python stuff, but someone else that I'm working with reached out to me and said, hey, I'm doing this stuff with this Assembly AI API, and I don't know how to save the file that well. Can you help me? I'm like, oh, this looks really simple. This is really nice. So yeah, you guys are doing good work. Yeah, we try to make it really simple. Yeah. Yeah, fantastic. Brian, shall we kick it off? I think we should. With a TUI? Oh, We've yeah. Heard of a GUI, a GUI, a graphical user interface, and uh, this new trend of taking stuff that happens in the terminal and making it nicer. We've covered things like Rich and stuff before, right? Yeah, a lot. I love Rich. Yeah, I do too. And I'm super, super big fan. So I want to cover something that's like a derivative of Rich from Will McGann, McGogan. Um, <laughs> see, well, here we are messing up names already. Sorry, Will. <laughs> and the idea is if I wanted to create like Emacs or a richer UI with something like Rich, I can sort of control stuff on the screen and how it prints, but it's not full on curses, right? It's not, I want to write in this section over here and I want to dock this other bit to the right and have Rich automatically put stuff into it and so on. So I introduce you to um, Textual. It was called Rich.tui, UI, as in text uh, terminal user interface, but it's uh, now called Textual. And the idea is we can have these cool things like I would like a thing to be a header of my terminal app and the footer of my terminal app. And I want to dock a 30 column wide section to the left and then just fill out the rest in a little area that just takes the rest of the space. How cool is that? Yeah, this is great. Yeah. And then each one of these areas is written to and controlled by Rich. So all the nice stuff that we've already talked about with Rich and the really nice uh, things you get from there. So, you know, if people remember like Rich lets you have like spectrums and like centered text or right aligned text and tables and just all sorts of good stuff. So think of doing that, but on top of this, like lay, it's almost like a layout for terminals. Yeah. He's kind of rethinking how to do terminal stuff. So this, um, uh, I know you can do all of this stuff with curses libraries and things like that, but curses isn't always easy on all, all platforms. So he's uh, re rethinking all of it. And I think it's really kind of fun. Yeah, I do want to point out something here really quick. Uh, there's a comment in the readme that says, this project is currently a work in progress and may not be usable for a while. So, you know, just kind of maybe watch the repo mm -hmm. and, and get notifications and stuff and see, you know, keep your eye out for it. On the other hand, this kind of thing, these early stages, a lot of people contact us and say, I really want to get into open source. I want to contribute to some project. What should I work on? Should I work on Django? It's like, well, that's going to be a little bit complicated. It's highly polished and there's a ton of dependencies. Like projects like this that are in the early stages are really good for jumping in and getting involved if it sparks your interest. So, yeah, and there's a lot of room for people to do things like uh, add to the testing, do documentation, test on different platforms, and really 
help it so that Will can concentrate on doing more features. So. Yeah, 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 exactly. Even documentation, like a little tutorial or whatever. And yeah. Kim out in the live stream, hey Kim says, I would argue curses isn't easy anywhere. I agree. It <laughs> always feels like, oh boy, we're going down, going down this path. Yeah. Mike, what do you think? Well, it looks you like a really this? cool. Yeah, it looks like a really cool um, library. And I think for for me, I you know I try to think of what would I use it for, and and certainly a lot of internal tooling, um, you know, that that we could use this for to uh, you know so that we can make better ways of uh, monitoring our our. Um, our machine learning systems and, and how that all works. And uh, so, yeah, I think that's would be something I would like to look at. Um, and uh, yeah, and also just a lot of times too, is just, um, you know, trying something out, even if you have like a day or two to just try it out and, and hit the bug so you can really communicate that with the community and what's, you know, what, what is broken and what could be, what could be fixed. Yeah, absolutely. I'm excited to see where this goes. Um, yeah. So next up, I, we want to talk about pip tools. Um, so uh, we actually, one of the listeners, John Hagen, uh, contacted us a while ago and said, hey, uh, have you covered this? And we thought we had, but I don't think we have. Uh, so I'm um, going to cover it now. So um, PIP tools. So we've, ta we've talked about other things around PIP, like poetry, and, and there's other ways to, um, to, and, you know, some virtual environment controllers and stuff. This isn't that. This isn't an all-in-one thing. But one of the things that, uh, like, for instance, poetry gives you is, and uh, a couple other packaging things is uh, lock files and stuff. Um, and a, kind of a lock file really isn't, I mean, it isn't really what it does. I don't know if it's a lock file or a pinned, pinned requirements, but the idea around, PipTool does, does a whole bunch of stuff, but right now I'm just going to concentrate on the compile part. So the problem it solves is, so let's say I've got like, I'm going to give an example of, I've got like a, a requirement my my dependency is rich and typer is a like two libraries i'm depending on i could just have a simple requirements.in file that has this just those two 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 labels in it and then with pip tools i can take that and take that requirements in file and um and compile it i run pip compile and then i get like a a, a pinned list and it actually just goes it goes ahead and writes the requirements.txt file so uh, just from an easy, I, I require these things and it'll pop out the, uh, the actual pinned dependencies. And now I can deploy this and, and, uh, all the other developers and stuff can use it and be okay with it. Of course, uh, uh, in, before you, uh, do the deployment, please test this. So that's the idea as you upgrade your, um, update your requirements and then, uh, and then test it before you deploy it. But this little extra step of taking, like, I've got a loose list of requirements and I want to create a pinned list. Um, you can also, there's pip tools also has a, a way to just say, um, I'm going to get the syntax right, upgrade. So you say dash dash upgrade and it updates your requirements. Uh, one of the things I love about it also is it doesn't just do one file. So if you've got a requirements.txt and a, a dev requirements.txt, for instance, with your, you know, your testing tools, PyTest and such, you can throw that in a different file and it'll it'll update those too. So you can have as many, actually as many uh, requirements files as you want and it handles it just fine. So this is a really cool thing. Um, Jonathan also gave us a uh, an example project, this um, uh, Python blueprint uh, that has uh, example code in it and it, it uses this workflow and it has it in the readme. So if you want to check out a project that uses this, um, go ahead and do that. I don't really actually, to be, to be honest, I don't use the uh, pip tools for anything other than this. This is what I use pip tools for. It's just this. I know it does other things too, but this is what I use it for. I'm psyched about this. This looks fantastic. I I have a requirements.txt and a dev 
requirements-dev.txt. And in there, <laughs> I've been putting like at the top, here's the stuff that I really wanted to install. And below it, these are the things I want to pin, not because I actually care about them or you would actually need to mention them, but I want things like to pin a bot to see that there's a security problem in the dependency I'm using, not the thing itself. And so it'll bump the version and fix it, right? Yeah. And that means, I just noticed a couple of days ago that there's these other libraries. I'm like, where did this come from? I This is in my virtual environment and I didn't, it's not in either of those scenarios, right? Well, some new dependency was added to the main dependency that I didn't pay attention to. So now I'm like babysitting the bottom half of my requirements.txt file, which seems like a thing I don't want to do with life. Yeah. <laughs> this is beautiful. I'm I'm all about this. I'm very much thinking that this is going to be something I'm using um, out there. My yeah, guys so, seem to agree. Yeah, I absolutely agree. And I, I, I actually, have, we do not use this. I do not use this, but I will be looking into this right after this podcast. So, <laughs> so, I, so you're like, I, why am I not doing well? Yeah, this is this this will make my life a lot easier and uh, I'm definitely going to look into it. Yeah. Now, yeah. Jurgen brings up, oh, you <laughs> uh the pip to pip tools is awesome. Um yes, it is. And he also brings up that it's all about the app versus library story. So pip tools is definitely on the app side, so you um uh you wouldn't want completely pinned dependencies in in a library because it might conflict with the rest of the application. So yeah, right, or pin you point. to say I have to have the one that has the vulnerability in it, <laughs> rather than the newer <laughs> one that fixes it. Right, you don't want that. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. So I think. Yeah, I think you're I up. Think Mike. I'm up. All right. Uh, now okay. you. Okay. So here, right. here's a hint on the pronunciation, but you're gonna have to give this a shot on your own. Yeah. So I'm gonna say it's it's penguin, but uh, I guess you could call it penguin. I don't know. I don't know uh, what the proper pronunciation pronunciation there is, but uh, so Penguin is a library for automating gener the generation of of tests. So um, basically, what you do is it's CLI. You set this up. Uh, you point it at your code. Uh, you can sometimes give it hints, um, and then it goes off and uh, it processes the the your your files and produces tests. Um, just disclaimer here, they mentioned this several times, and this is very important. It will run your code, so and it it will try many different inputs. So you have to be very careful um, with what that code is doing. So they suggest wrapping it in a Docker container to prevent it from uh, affecting or poisoning your, your file system. Yeah, maybe uh, don't give it access to the production database, something like that. Yes, exactly, exactly. So, <laughs> so yes, uh, uh, this this um, I, I I didn't go deep into it, uh, but I know that they're using some interesting uh, search techniques. This is actually developed by a col uh, at a university, and there's a white paper behind it. I don't think it's here, but um, if you if you look it up, I'm, I'm sure you could find uh, you know the white paper that's associated. But uh, it's supposed to be a very interesting technique around searching for you know the inputs that would be uh, you know. That would find good um, edge cases. So uh, it does take a while to run. They say uh, so you can give it some hints, and they talk about that uh, within the documentation. But I really think this is something for me. You know, I look at tools. I'm like, well, what would I use it for? And and I think you know, a lot of times we're busy uh, and we don't get the coverage that we really want to get because you know deadlines and you know we want to land this customer and. Um, and so we have to get, we have to, you know, work really quick to get this one feature done. And we don't, we only get half coverage instead of getting, you know, uh, 90% or plus. So, um, so I think this tool could help maybe bridge that gap, uh, in those cases and maybe give you uh, a jump, a jump start to, to getting the coverage that you're looking for on your projects. Uh, so that's what I'm looking at it for. And, um, yeah, yeah I think it's a cool project. 
It looks like one of those systems, a little bit like Hypothesis. Are you familiar with Hypothesis? Uh, only by name. I haven't actually looked into yeah. it. Where it kind of tries to determine, oh, what are some edge cases and some, like you give it bounds of data and it'll test different scenarios for you. Uh, looks looks quite interesting. Brian, are you familiar with this? I'm not. I, I'm actually often leery of test generators, um, but um, I don't know if people find it useful. Maybe it's worth checking out. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it looks neat. Um, yeah, I'm the same. I would say I'm the same, Brian. I did, you know, I was a little bit leery, I guess, about about uh, the idea of it. Um, uh, for me, as I said, I think it's just really that gap that you know, if you have a gap in coverage and, and you're really just trying to get a quick a quick jump start on on your your coverage, uh, this might be a good tool to start with. That's that's my thought. Yeah, yeah, very cool. That's good. Although, Brian, I don't know if you really. Uh... <laughs> want to encourage it too much you're getting out there <laughs> if i'd known about penguin earlier i, I might not have bought brian's testing book you didn't kidding. need to highlight that yeah. <laughs> uh, indeed indeed all right you got the next one uh well i wanted to um uh, i think we're at the uh, sponsor bit i believe we are yeah so let's um um yeah so i don't have our sponsor up i got you there we go this episode of python bytes is brought to you by sentry how would you like to remove a little stress from your life? Well, do you worry about users that do you worry that users may be having difficulties or encountering errors in your app? Right now, would you even know until they sent you a support email? How much better would it be to have error the error and performance details immediately sent to you, including the call stack and values of local variables and the active user recorded in the report? That'd be awesome. With Sentry, it's not only possible but simple. In fact, Michael uses Sentry on all of his web properties, including uh, Python Bytes here. Um, he actually fixed a bug triggered by a user and had the upgrade ready to roll out as he got the support email. Um, that's also Sentry, but also because Michael's awesome. But anyway, um, surprise and delight your users today. Create your Sentry account at pythonbytes.fm slash Sentry. And please, when signing up, click the got a promo code and redeem, the, redeem and enter Python Bytes, all one word. It's good for two free months of Sentry's team plan, which will give you up to 20 times as many monthly events, as well as other features. That's pythonbytes-sentry and promo code pythonbytes. Yep. Thanks, Sentry. All right. I guess I got the next one. This one is sent in by a, user, uh, a friend of the show, Brian Skin. Thank you, Brian. And he let us know uh, that there is something out there for all of us who love these external packages and all of these amazing Lego building blocks that are PyPI. And yet that's running other people's code with dependencies on them getting things right. Mm. <laughs> and it's, uh, this is under the PyPA. So this is sort of uh, pretty neat in terms of, you know, being officially the Python packaging authority group, right? Uh, I believe. And so it's called the advisory-db. It's a security advisory database for Python packages published on PyPI.org. And the idea is if somebody finds some major problem with the package, or maybe even worse, maybe it's like a type of squatting scenario, but more like, you know, that part where they were supposed to check the input in that form, and then they did this <laughs> direct SQL query. They didn't do that. Now they are. You really, really should change that so that they're uh, using like parameterized queries now. And so there's a vulnerabilities directory that is just a bunch of YAML files. You come over here, like, let's take uh, one here that maybe is security conscious bleach. <laughs> I love the name of this package. The idea is you take user input and you sanitize it by putting bleach on it, which is fantastic. But even the sanitizers can have problems, right? So if we check this out back apparently in 2020. Um, there's a problem 
with bleach in PyPI and said, in Mozilla Bleach before 3.12, a mutation XSS cross-site scripting in bleach.clean when RC, RC data and either the SVG or math tags are whitelisted and such and such is set like, oh my gosh, but here's all the version it affects and here's the fixed version. And then there's some more info about like where that was spoken about, like where the problem was discovered and so on. This is really cool. So if you depend on these packages, and we already spoke at the beginning about how having a tracking your dependencies, not just the things you directly install, let you lets you be more aware of this, right? You could look at that pip tools generated requirements.txt file and see this problem. And then very likely GitHub through dependent bot would even be proposing a fix. What do you guys think? Yeah, that's great. Um, I think yes, this sir. is cool. So how do you use it? Do you, do you just look stuff up or? You let it help you. I mean, you can come over here and obviously look it up. Uh, it depends on what's going on. I think more if you're maintaining a package, you can do a PR to let people know. There's a triage service, which uh, goes through the NIST. It pulls a lot of data from the NIST, uh, what that's called, the National Vulnerability Database Data Feed. Whew, say that again. So like, if it gets submitted there, it gets a lot of the data gets pulled back in. Uh, they have a tool to perform some heuristics to match that back up. And then you can do, most importantly, is there's an API that you can use. So these vulnerabilities, when submitted to this GitHub repository, are then submitted outwardly to this place called the Open Source Vulnerability or the Database for Open Source Vulnerabilities. Hmm. And then this has an API that people can call to learn about these problems. So if you ran, I don't know, if you were an API company and you wanted to make sure your API wasn't getting hacked by having a bad dependency, maybe you make this part of your CI/CD or something, Mike. Yeah, absolutely. I'm gonna have to tell uh, our DevOps, <laughs> our DevOps guru, Mitch, uh, to look into this. <laughs> exactly. So, I mean, for the most part, having stuff pinned in GitHub will trigger an immediate security notification to you when GitHub finds out about it and when that makes it out. But if you want to be a little more proactive, or you're a security researcher, or something like that. This looks like a good one. In the longer term, we're looking, uh, we're working with the PyPI team to build a pipeline to automatically get these vulnerabilities into PyPI. So maybe like you could see it or, or something like that. I'm not oh. exactly sure what the story is there, but it's a start for basically storing that data and sharing that data. And then hopefully like it, it makes its way over to PyPI and such. Yeah. Uh, Sam Morley, welcome. Glad you made the live show, man. Uh, said, is there a tool that uh, can run like a pre-commit hook? I feel like maybe with just a tiny bit of wrapper, you could call that API over at the Open Source Vulnerabilities Project and get some information back. Yeah, yeah that'd be cool. Yeah, that would be a cool thing. Like, don't check that in. It's got a problem. <laughs> Change yeah. it. Don't, yeah. don't push it. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So anyway, uh, I think this is a pretty cool one. Thanks, Brian Skin, for sending it in. Yeah, so um, I don't you know. know. Uh, Sorry, Brian, so I was going to say, yeah, you're a C++ developer, right? Yeah. And C++ is all about overriding functions by type. Like, oh, it takes an int, it takes a float. This one takes a string and it's totally different. Python doesn't have that. <laughs> yeah, what's funny is I don't actually use it that much in C++. I mean, you you, <laughs> you learn about it a lot, but I don't, I mean, I normally don't write a whole bunch of functions that, that have the same name, but take different parameters. But you can do, yes, you can do that, definitely do it in C++ and C. Um, and I, there's probably other languages you can do that in, but those are the two main languages that I work yeah. with. C Sharp, um, for example, does it. Okay. Java as well. Um, the Python you cannot. So Python just uh, it's, if you if you try to do that, the second one wins, and you just have uh, another name that is attached to the function. So I was um, and I ne I never really thought that I had a problem with this, but there are definitely times where it would be simpler to not try to 
put a switch in place or something and and uh just have some like several functions that that dealt with related things but uh in different functions so this uh there's there's an article called uh the correct way to overload functions in python and maybe it is but uh i am just i'm not somebody that likes to use the phrase the correct way because Somebody will tell me I'm wrong. But anyway, it's an interesting yeah, article. You, you might, for example, hear like, you shouldn't overload functions in Python. You're doing it wrong if you do it at all, for example, right? Yeah, exactly. But Although it's this a, is a cool solution. I totally like it. Definitely, it's a cool solution. So there, there's this, um, there's a, a apparently a built-in way with uh, Funk Tools. So there's a, uh, Funk Tools has a, um, uh, a decorator called Single Dispatch. And what what it does is you can decorate a basically a function signature with a with a single function. You say that I'm going to single dispatch this this function, and then you register all you do like the name of the function dot register as decorators around uh, uh, other uh, functions. And I'm and the example shown uh, in the article just uses underscore. I'm guessing that's just because you don't care what the name is. I don't know, but that seems like a good way to do it. Um, and then you've got then after after that you just have that works it works like you've done function overloading. Um, yeah, so it's awesome. So in the example, it takes you can call this format function with a string with a date with a date time and a time, and you actually get there's like three different functions that get called one for a string, one for a date, one that just falls back or something, right? Yeah, I mean it's a it's a pretty simple example, and if you if and it's pretty clean code, so uh, I would. I definitely try to keep all these things together in one, you know, in one module, of course. <laughs> you would be mean to put them in different places. That would be so wrong. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Or, or even <laughs> like spread out in the same function would be terrible. But, yeah, um, yeah. but keeping them together, this, this is great. Um, uh, they, the, one of the things that the article mentions is that this, you can't really, it's called single dispatch because it's based on the type of the first func. I think it's based on the type of the first parameter. So if you want to do uh, multi-parameter ones, there is a um, there's a, a third-party plugin called Multiple Dispatch um, oh, wow. that you you can just pip install, and then it kind of works the same. Although the, Ooh, I kind of like this one better, honestly. The syntax is a little different, and it it probably does single dispatch too. I'm guessing, but yeah, um, just one parameter. Um, but uh, in this this one, yeah, a similar sort of thing. It's just a kind of works on multiple parameters. Multiple I'm, I'm digging the multiple dispatch style where you just say dispatch. This is the arguments are list stir. You know, um, we're going to maybe get to where Mike is going at the end of the show, but it would be even cooler if you could just say at dispatch and then put a type like a colon list, b colon stir. So I want to dispatch on types this, and, and stuff like that and have the dispatch uh, decorator look at the function that's passed in and look at the type parameters and then just do that. So... You don't have to say the types more than once. Anyway, oh, don't wanna, I don't, we come back to that as well. Yeah. So, so I, you know, I'm in a past life. I was, I was a Java engineer. So I, I, we, you know, uh, we call it dynamic dispatch in, in Java, and and it's uh, it's actually there's a lot of patterns, uh, object oriented patterns that that kind of are de- derived from that from that feature uh, from the you know from again from the C plus plus well from the old days <laughs> and uh, and um, uh, yeah no I. To me, this actually, you know, when I saw it, I, I was like, okay, I could definitely use this for a lot of a lot of cases. Um, I know that, like, when you want might want to build, uh, when you have like a, a piece of code that has to work with a, a variety of different types, but they're very similar types, maybe, and you want to do something with with that family of types, 
um, you know, I think that that would be something I would, you know, I would think to, to look at to solve with something like this. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, I kind of had the same thought and I do not think I would make this any sort of normal workflow use case for my code, but there are times where you have some code that says, if, you know, argument is, uh, the type of this is a list, do this thing. If it's not a list, then make an empty list, put it in and then do this other thing. You know, like if you're doing mm -hmm. that type switching already, like this dispatch thing might actually make it more clear, right? It's not common yeah. to do it in Python, but there are times you're like, I kind of want to be able to take a string or a date time and then just parse the string if it, you know, those kinds of things. So, so as an API company, this is actually kind of interesting. It fits into what we do as an API company. We have to, a lot of times, you know, we, we're not very, we're not overly strict on our input types. Um, we, we allow like truthy and falsy kind of types to come in for like Booleans. And um, I could see us using this for that. Right, so that way, instead of using all the the helper code we've already written for that, have it more of, along the lines of okay, if it's this type of uh, input, you know, then then you can convert it this way. If it's this type of input, you can convert it that way. Uh, and I think we could probably write some some code to uh, to handle our inputs differently using using this pattern. Yeah, yeah, very neat insight there, Brian. You blew up our chat with this. <laughs> well, you want to pull out some uh, highlights? Yeah. All right. So John Sheehan says, function overloading was one of those things like switch statements that I missed when I first started Python, but then I found I rarely needed it. Yeah, I'm, I'm kind of with you on that. Like I said, there's those few cases for me that I'm like, where I'm doing a type check or is instance of that, I think is the one time, but that's, you know, a couple of times in a whole program. What do you think, Bray? Uh, yeah, I, I, did, I did, definitely missed it at first. And now I just don't even really notice it. Yeah. <laughs> Then you've got uh you're gonna get it says Luciano Romano Romano uh also explains this in fluent Python. I just read the pre version of the second edition, uh getting some polish. Yeah, very nice. That's a really good book, Fluent Python as well. Um yeah. Kim out there says that's the kind of thing I was thinking of. Yeah. Um oh, sorry, that's a different comment. We'll come back to that in a minute. And then <laughs> Sam Morley. Uh I, I don't tend to find this kind of dispatching that useful. I generally just write a master function that takes star arc, star wrgs and dispatch to other functions yeah yep but if you're switching on this instance it could be it could be a time yeah and then stepping back one quick topic kim vanawake says would it be handy if some pip tooling could automatically check the pypa advisory before downloading a package oh, that would be slick yeah i just did a typo squatting and pypi security episode over on talk python and we had a lot of interesting ideas like almost like a have I been pwned, like remember what I installed. And if you ever see I installed something out of vulnerability, quick, shoot me a note and let me know. Hey, a few weeks ago, you installed this thing. You might want to get rid of it now. Stuff like that. But I think this is another interesting thing along those lines. All right, like kind of cache that data and then just say, you know, I know you want to install it. And maybe this is what they're talking about with integrating that into PyPI.org itself. Who knows? Oh, very cool. All right, Mike, you got the last one. Some SQL. Yeah, so um, AIO SQL is a, so as it says, simple SQL in Python. Uh, it's a SQL templating framework or, or library uh, that really uh, you, what you do is you give it some SQL files with some, um, it has some conventions around how you define queries. And then it essentially gives you a query mapping uh, that you can then use in your code. Um, and this is kind of a, it's a minimalistic way of, of access to your, of accessing your database. Um, it is, you know, with the A in front of it, it's, uh, it's, um, natively asynchronous. Um, it works really well with async PG. I know that, uh, we use, uh, Postgres. So, you know, uh, that, that was a good, um, uh, that was a highlight for us to, to look at it. Um, and, you know, I, I think we all have worked with ORMs. Um, you know, I've come back and forth on ORMs over the years. Um, you know, I think this is a nice fit for when you have 
when you when you don't have to do uh, a lot of touch a lot of different tables or do a lot of joins. Maybe you have a small microservice that just needs to do a, a couple, um, you know, uh, uh, reads and writes updates. Um, and uh, and also, I think this really helps because ORMs, especially when you're dealing at scale, you have to really know the ORM at a very deep level to understand what it's doing. And this kind of exposes all of, you know, it really just brings you down to the SQL level. So now you know exactly what you're doing and you, you can be a little bit more direct on what you want to, what, what you want to do with your data. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes uh, you're like, well, I want to do the join and then the filter, not the filter, then the, I don't know. Like if you're mm -hmm. really good at SQL, you can, you can put these little tricks in like, oh, it's actually likes it better if we do it this way rather than that way. And exactly. ORM is probably not going to let you. That. So let me just describe this to people out there because it's breaking some paradigms for me. So this is a library that allows you to write queries against a database, but you do it almost with data access, data access layer style of things. So you would you don't do a you put quote select star from such and such. You you would say like query dot get all greetings or get user by username, and mm -hmm. you pass say like username equals such and such in an asynchronous way, which is Pretty interesting. But the way that that has meaning is you create a .sql file that has like a doc string like thing and you write a bunch of SQLs, almost like stored procedures, but just in a text file. This thing Correct. parses it and then it becomes like a smart query data access layer. Correct. Yeah. So it basically builds out um, either you know, data access layer or data access object kind of for you where you can basically map in these these um, uh, these queries and uh, it's not just queries you can do mutations and you can do you can do uh, ddl and all of that so yeah um yeah it gives yeah, like you create a lot. tables or whatever it could yeah. be a function you call yeah absolutely so brian what do you think do you touch sql much these days um i'm touching it more and more and i love this actually um because i always assume if there's a bug it's probably in my sql statement uh, but this looks yeah. pretty cool so get get your get your selects and stuff figured out what kind of queries you want to do ahead of time and uh and then use them in your code this is cool yeah yeah i mean i'm very repelled by writing raw sql statements in my code <laughs> very much like uh kim van wick others like uh, this looks exactly what i like like not writing sql but not using an rm so it's no secret yeah. to the world out there that i'm a, a mongodb fan so i i'm not i don't have like direct use for this a lot but i i do find this super valuable especially if people on the team are really good at SQL and they're like, oh, this this library is inhibiting me from like using my superpower exactly. on the database. Right, Mike? Exactly. Yeah, that's exactly. And that, I was just about to say that, you know, if, if you have a DBA or you have someone who who is, you know, basically they are focused or concentrated on the database and, and optimizing those queries, uh, you know, I think what, what this allows you to do, then you can go define your queries and you can write them yourself how they are uh, as a developer. And then maybe you can take that to your to the expert and have him refine them for you. Um, without actually changing the abstraction, right? Like without, yeah. you still get that, yeah. Yeah, there's also times where like, let's say I've got an internal tool that I want to put together and it needs a database and it's really not that big of a deal to tell like your your IT department and your supervisor and stuff that you're going to throw up a MySQL database and or something and, and interact with it or Postgres. Um, but to say, hey, I'm going to throw Mongo in there, it, that might bring up a just a just a discussion that you're just not ready to have. So um yeah, for sure. Let me suggest a pairing, you know, kind of like as you pair wines, a pairing with this library. I think Pydantic might go fantastic with this, right? So you get yes. these results back as um, tuples, and then you could just, you know, star args that into your Pydantic models, 
and you get your validation and all sorts of like stuff. And then you get a list of Pydantic, like you're one list comprehension away from something beautiful here. Yeah. And this is, that's exactly what we're doing. Uh, You know, we're using, uh, you know, I think right now we're building out a new stack uh, and it's basically, it's, it's, it's fast API Pydantic, um, you know, AIO SQL. Oh, interesting. And yeah. you're finding Actually, async it PG works for, well. Oh, it's a, yeah. And it's very performant. So it's, um, you know, because it's, it's asynchronous, right? We're using async PG all the way down to the database too. So uh, it's pretty much asynchronous from end to end. Um, Fantastic. Yeah. This is a really good recommendation. Yeah. You like it too, right, Brian? It's pretty sweet. Yeah, this is great. Yeah, I, I do. I really like the separation of concerns of the SQL statements and the Python code, but the flexibility of having both. It's pretty cool. Awesome. Brian, is that it for us? Um, yeah. Uh, anybody topics? have any other topics they want to bring up? Oh, you, you know I do. Kind of, uh, kind of crazy. So it's not quite an extra, 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 extra here all about it. But a couple of things sent in from some listeners. So let me make sure I credit these. So uh, Daniel Mulkey uh, sent this one in and said, there is now, has been for a little while a, from Science Direct, there's a journal for academics called Software X. And this library is pretty cool. So it aims to acknowledge the impact of software in today's research. So if you're in academics, one of the big challenges is that whole publish or perish sort of thing. And it would be great to take this cool library and make it a thing that's out on PyPI or Conda that people can use. Oh, but that's going to take a week and a half. And you really only get credit for your citations in articles, not in code, right? So this kind of addresses that to try to give people a place to publish like their projects in a meaningful way. And I just want to point out that there's a special issue on the software that contributed to the LIGO experiment, the gravitational wave discovery, which pretty sure got the Nobel Prize. I to- don't totally remember. But if you just start poking around here, you know, you might find the word Python periodically in this <laughs> this thing here. So uh, over in this one, we got some Python. I'm just randomly clicking articles and they're all coming up Python. So I think that that's pretty sweet. If people are in science and they do this computational side of thing, check this out. Very cool. Right, that, yeah, that's number one. Number two, PyCon has been finished for a little while, and we were able to go through some like meeting platform type thing where we could watch the replays, but it's a little bit wonky in the way that the playback worked. Like I, I had to do some weird stuff to actually get logged back in after a while. Anyway, it was fine for live stuff, but it was weird for playback. YouTube is pretty awesome for playback, and here's the I'm, I put in the show notes the playlist for all of PyCon 2021 US. So that's pretty cool. I don't know how many videos are in here. It looks like 86 videos. So if you want to catch up on the PyCon talks, there's a really good way. Nice. It looks like um, uh, Jurgen had a uh, uh, had a lightning talk there. So uh, yeah, it's cool. Yeah, very cool. Well done. And um, also want to get sh- make sure I get the credit for this one right. Um, Madison Swain Bowden, who we both met, I believe, at PyCascades, uh, shared this with us that um, AIC... S image IO, which is uh, used all over biology, biological imaging and microscopy and that kind of stuff from the Allen Institute, Allen Brain Institute, I'm guessing, is uh, was just released. So if you're doing anything with like graphics and pictures and file formats and stuff for that, check that out. And uh, yeah, that's it for me. I think Mike, you got one as well, right? At least. Uh, yeah. So yeah, uh, it's Pep 563 um, was. It's I think it's proposed postponed uh, evaluation of annotations. And uh, basically there was, there was some, as I, I think I mentioned before, you know, uh, I, I'm a big, I'm a big fan of fast API and Pydantic. And there was some, some worry, um, you know, a couple months ago that 
this change would uh, effectively break these projects uh, in, in 310 if it was introduced. And so I just wanted to give a shout out to, you know, to the community for jumping on this and just being really, you know, um, open-minded about this and, and um, basically postponing this uh, a little further so that, so that uh, better decisions can be made on how to navigate uh, this change. So I, I don't yeah. want to go yeah, too deep into it, but uh, I, I read some of the threads on this and it was just really positive, um, you know, really positive exchange within the community. And I think it turned out really well. Uh, there was like a unanimous decision, I believe, to postpone it. And it, it saved these projects from having to, uh, well, basically- At a, a minimum within, scramble, yes, right? Yeah. Worst case, worst, uh, not work. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. let me see if I can give the elevator pitch. There was a proposal in Python 3.10, I guess, 5.3.8. Oh, no, five, sorry, 5.6.3. Uh, I don't know where that came from. 5.6.3, PEP 5.6.3, where there is an attempt to simplify and speed up type annotations. And by do, because right now, if you want to do a type annotation, if I'm going to say I've created a Pydenic model, it's called user. And I'm going to say this thing returns a user, I have to import user at the top. And it was like, well, you're not going to get those evaluated or really dealt with unless you're doing type ana uh, annotation analysis. So we're going to treat those as strings, basically. Yeah. Right. And things like FastAPI and Pydantic and others were going, they would actually get the type information, standard Python style, and then use that to modify behavior, right? Like to do, oh, it says it's a list of ints, so we're gonna convert from this list of those, or maybe a list of users, we're gonna convert these these JSON things to users. But with this change, it would have said, well, it's a string, and what does user mean, right? If you don't know the actual type where it's coming from, there could be multiple users. It could be yeah. a user it couldn't tr track down. Has it been imported yet? All sorts of weirdness around it. So the runtime behavior of these type annotated things like Typer, Pydantic, FastAPI were, not sure how they were going to keep working with this being adopted. And it sounds like it's postponed at least till 311. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah thanks for bringing this up. That's a good one. Yeah. All right. Um, well, kind of end of the show. Do we have any jokes? Uh, I got something for you. Uh, I'll, I'll tell you. Let me know if it qualifies. So this is from Zach RMRF on Twitter. It says, um, did you hear about the four Pythonistas that robbed a bank? Three got caught. And when questioned, they all stated that the fourth would never be caught, couldn't be caught, because he knew reg regex and was something of an escape artist. <laughs> that's funny. Yeah, I think that's pretty good. Well done, Zach. Thanks for sending that in. Brian, you got anything as well? Yeah, let me uh, uh, pull it up. Um, so uh, Rich, uh, not Rich, uh, Will McCougan uh, asked about Rich and said, um, uh, said, hey, if I wrote a book about Rich, um, what should how much money would you pay for it? But also what should be in the book? Of course, I said it should cover how fast it is to install it. Kind of a get rich quick guide. So. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. Yeah. Love it. And I believe the response was something like get out. Get out. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. Oh, nice. Will's getting a lot of uh, coverage this week. That's beautiful. He's doing good work. All right. Speed of coverage. Yeah. Thanks for being here, Mike. Well, thank you guys for having me. This was really fun. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks for everybody for joining on the live stream as well. Bye all. Thank you for listening to Python Bytes. Follow the show on Twitter via at Python Bytes. That's Python Bytes as in B-Y-T-E-S. And get the full show notes at pythonbytes.fm. If you have a news item you want featured, just visit pythonbytes.fm and send it our way. We're always on the lookout for sharing something cool. On behalf of myself and Brian Aachen, this is Michael Kennedy. Thank you for listening and sharing this podcast with your friends and colleagues.